0: women, elderly. It's a total out war uh, against uh, Russia. You also see in the mobilization of the entire Ukrainian society. The president of Ukraine called a general mobilization, but there are so many volunteers at the military recruiting centers, they cannot keep up giving up weapons.
1: another edition of Blue Skies Political Podcast. My name is Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham, and Blue Skies has been on a little bit of a hiatus. This was a podcast that I started a few years ago to bring a high-level discussion on important issues facing Canada, facing the world, by bringing on some important guests and covering topics in a new way in my role as Member of Parliament. I've had a few roles in a few years since we started the Blue Skies, but the events of the last month in Ukraine has gripped our country. There are 1.4 million Canadians who have Ukrainian ancestry. Ukrainians were some of the earliest settlers in Western Canada. They've built our country in Durham region, which I'm proud to represent. Oshawa's one of the old oldest homes of the Ukrainian community. Mike Starr, a mayor of Oshawa, and the first cabinet minister of Ukrainian background from the Durham region, conservative, by the way. And the depth of the Ukrainian-Canadian community has touched Canadians in the last few weeks as they've rallied support to Ukraine after Putin's invasion of that country. So we're going to talk about the crisis in Ukraine right now, the war caused by Russian aggression, and we're having a distinguished Ukrainian-Canadian join us to bring his particular expertise. Welcome, Ihor Kozak.
0: Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: Well, listen, we've been friends for many, many years, a couple of decades now, and I'm not having you on just because you're my friend. You have an incredible personal story that spans Ukraine and Canada. You are a Canadian Armed Forces veteran. You are someone that's been very active in the League of Ukrainian Canadians. You've helped with aid, charitable projects. You've helped. With uh, the Ukrainian military and its its rebuilding efforts, why don't you give a background on your personal story and why you're one of the examples of the Ukrainian Canadian so passionate about what's happening in Ukraine right now?
0: I was born and raised uh, in Ukraine, Soviet Union at the time. My great grandfather was uh, ha- was living in Canada since uh, 1928 in Oshawa, by the way. He moved here between World War I, World War II, as so many Ukrainians came at a time uh, to earn some money to support family, poor family back home. He could not go back because World War II started in 1839 and therefore he stayed in Canada for many years. My great-grandmother eventually joined him. Uh, We, the rest of the family, was not allowed by KGB to travel uh, to Canada and therefore we could reunite him only in 1992 after Soviet Union collapsed. So I moved to Canada to Oshawa in 92, I was 16. I uh, almost finished high school in Ukraine, it was one year left. I came to Canada and uh, worked for a number of years to support family here in Canada and back in Ukraine, eventually finish high school working weekends and evenings uh, as necessary. And then I was for very fortunate to uh, be accepted uh, into the Royal Military College of Canada. I was, uh, as a matter of fact, the first uh, immigrant from the former Soviet Union to join this prestigious Royal Military College of Canada, which you, by the way, Aaron, and a graduate of the Royal Military Co- College too, so we have so many things uh, in common besides uh, friendship, our military, and an RMC uh, background uh, as well. Uh, after graduating from the Royal Military College in Canada, of Canada, I served a number of years in the Canadian Armed Forces, and it was a tremendous uh, opportunity to serve in uniform, uh, to uh, to support our efforts in Afghanistan Operation Athena, Operation uh, Apollo uh, in the Middle East, uh, War on Terror, uh, also to conduct various uh, military diplomatic uh, work on the program such an open skies, arms control verification, uh, partnership for peace, um, including Russia, Ukraine, other countries of the former uh, Soviet Union. It's a tremendous experience and a tremendous contribution that the Canadian Armed Forces uh, have, been doing, have been having you know, impact uh, uh, around the world. Uh, after retiring, con- taking an early retirement from the Canadian Armed Forces uh, uh, 10 years ago, uh, I became an entrepreneur, I became a strategy management consultant, uh, but in parallel, I began spending a lot of time and effort supporting the Ukrainian-Canadian community, various charitable, non-for-profit causes here in Canada, just to give back to the society and to follow in the footsteps of uh, people like my grandfather, who moved here with nothing but built strong communities and contribute so much to Canada becoming, I believe, the best country in the world. Uh, and uh, that effort was also expanded to work charitable, non-for-profit Uh, work uh, in Ukraine. Democracy building uh, projects, working with youth, uh, working as vulnerable with children, uh, and so many other aspects that uh, Ukraine as the post-Soviet country needed uh, help with.
1: You're uh, an aerospace engineer. so You were an engineer in the military, and you've worked in and around the aerospace and defense industries after. When the Harper government started sharing defensive military aid with Ukraine, we actually engaged you to make sure that the the non-lethal aid reached its uh intended target. You helped make sure that there was no leakage out of this uh supply chain. Yeah, that is that
0: correct. Person? That that is correct. I mean, when I, you know, that is my point that I start becoming very engaged with supporting Ukrainian military, with non-lethal military assistance, military training. And part of this was not only working. Uh, through the Ukrainian community and civil society in Ukraine, part of this was closely working uh, with the government of Canada, Harper administration uh, at a time with you, Aaron, with James Bazan, uh, Ted Opitz, other members of Parliament who were very actively uh, involved, and the Canadian government, Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, as you said, uh, Canada at the time was the first, uh, one of the first countries to provide substantial military assistance to Ukraine and the strongest support. And we needed to ensure that our uh, Canadian tax dollars were well spent, that our military equipment, which we took away from uh, women and men in uniform, would be delivered to the appropriate people, military units in Ukraine. So I also did a trip, as a matter of couple of trips, to, to Ukraine to ensure that that delivery took place, and uh, it certainly did, and it was very well appreciated by uh by Ukrainian uh, forces. I also closely work with various think tanks, uh, media uh, activists, uh, experts Uh, in Washington, uh, D.C. had many opportunities to spend time with members of Congress, testified in the U.S. Senate, and also in the White House uh, um, with State Department, work in Europe, in Brussels, uh, with NATO, with uh, European Union members throughout the world just to bring the message to the world that what's going in Ukraine is not only horrible because civilians are uh, suffering, but it's extremely dangerous to the to the free world. Not only to Ukraine, because Vladimir Putin is changing this world order as we know it, and he has the far-fetched plans to uh, move further. It's not only going to stop on Crimea uh, and on the Donbas.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, and you you've testified before our parliament, and looking back at that testimony now, that committee. Your warnings uh, were 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 very predictive of what's going on. Let's let's before we get into the history a little bit more. Why don't you give us an update on the ground? Canadians are gripped by this this war. Uh, seeing the the president uh, broadcasting himself out in front of the government buildings. Seeing uh, old people and and young people picking up rifles to defend their land it's scary and inspiring all at once why don't you give our listeners a bit of an update particularly with kiev and some of the some of the siege that is really being laid on ukraine and what's the state of play on the ground
0: so essentially what's going on in ukraine is uh, a full-fledged war between russia and ukraine a full-fledged invasion of ukraine by russia If you want to draw parallels, the the last time it happened was when Nazi Germany attacked the West, attacked Soviet Union, attacked Ukraine. Uh, This is not a special operation that President Putin is uh, talking about. Um, It's been going on for a couple of weeks, almost two weeks uh, now. Uh, The initial plan, uh, according to the US intelligence and other intelligence sources was for uh, Kremlin to Finish this operation in approximately three days, using special forces, saboteurs, and other special means to capture key city in Ukraine, especially in the East, industrial East, certainly capture the capital, to remove the current government, to put a puppet government in place, and then from the city of Kiev to dictate to the people of Ukraine and to the entire free world, a new world order in Europe, and make further plans on rebuilding Soviet Union or building a new Russian Empire. Let's remember that one of the famous or infamous rather quotes of President Putin is that collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest tragedies of the 21st centuries. And yeah. he, didn't certainly, he certainly didn't, uh, he hasn't been making a big secret that he wants to rebuild a Soviet Union or build the Russian Empire by all uh, means possible. So
1: the one one problem he ran into was the Ukrainian people. So three days did not happen. And he wasn't, I think, anticipating the level of not just Ukrainian military resistance, but civilian resistance. Um, You told me when we first spoke uh, of, of men in their 70s and even 80s picking up rifles, veterans uh, rejoining and, and deploying, um, this has gone from Moscow predicting a, a rapid victory to now a complex and uh, civilian population-based siege. Um, how are the cities holding up? How are the people holding up?
0: So you're correct, Erin, in that, that certainly this invasion hasn't been going for Putin and uh, his cronies in the Kremlin according to plan. Uh, and the Ukrainian people surprised Russia, but they also surprised uh, the West. Uh, there are many experts here in the West who were predicting that Ukraine doesn't stand a chance against Russia. To start with, Russian population is three and a half times the population of Ukraine. You have to realize that Russia inherited the majority of the Soviet Union's military might upon Soviet Union collapse, the entire military industrial complex. After all, Russia, over the past three decades has been engaged in various conflicts around the world, where Chechnya, Georgia, Syria, and elsewhere, and building the capability. Ukraine, on the other hand, has been up to this, or was till this point, a peaceful country that wasn't planning to engage any militarily. And therefore, uh, Russia and the Western experts believe that Ukraine does not stand a chance against one of the strongest, one of the most ruthless uh, militaries uh, in the world. The Ukrainians proven everybody wrong. Um, the resistance of the the fierce resistance, the ferocious fighting that Ukrainian military has been, you know, uh, has been engaging is in the Russian military has been second to none. And as you pointed out, it's not only the Ukrainian military that has been fighting. The entire population of Ukraine has been fighting Russian invasions. You look at the occupied territories, and there is very a small percentage of Ukrainian territories are still occupied, but even in those areas, you already have guerrilla warfares. You're having Ukrainian civilians sabotaging Russians, lines of communications, supply lines. Uh, in the cities where they occupied, the Russians occupied, people are refusing food from the Russians, uh, any assistance. There are attacking Russians. They are going on the peaceful demonstration with Ukrainian flags, children, women. Elderly, it's a total out war uh, against uh, Russia. You also see in the mobilization on the entire Ukrainian society. President of Ukraine called it general mobilization, but there are so many volunteers at the military recruiting centers, they cannot keep up giving up weapons. If you also look, for example, everybody talks here in Western media about approximately million and a half um, Ukrainian people who fled Uh, Ukraine so far, the refugees into Poland, primarily women, children, elderly, ill people, but rarely anybody talks that at the same time as a million and a half of those vulnerable people left Ukraine, more than 150,000 young men, mostly, returned to Ukraine as volunteers to fight in Ukraine and to join the resistance uh, against Russia. This is something that Russians certainly did not expect. I also have to say that another reason why Ukrainians have been so successful is because over the past eight years, they, their military become such, so much more stronger, so much more professional. And to a large extent, thanks to the training that has been provided to Ukrainians by Canadians and other Western partners, United States, UK, Poland, uh, Canadian military train over thirty thousand. Ukrainian troops in the military base, major base, but also across Ukraine to NATO standards. And as we know, our Canadian military has one of the best training programs in the world and certainly has significant experience through Afghanistan, peacekeeping missions, and so on. So that's another contributing factor. And now, in addition to this, Ukrainians have been receiving, perhaps a bit late, but they have been receiving substantial military assistance from the West with javelins and loves. Other anti tank stingers, anti aircraft missiles, which also helps them to fight Russian aggressors. And therefore, Russian aggressor, aggressors have been, their casualties have been very significant. According to Ukrainian sources, over uh, 11,000 dead Russian soldiers, about a quarter of the equipment destroyed. Putin moved in so far all the troops he had on the Ukrainian border before invasion, and he barely made any advances
1: the The resiliency of the Ukrainian people is inspiring, and I I remember one of the updates you gave me. One of your best friends from the Royal Military College led the training mission for a time in in Western Ukraine. So we both have known some of the amazing Canadian Armed Forces members that have that have been there. Um, Let's Let's go back uh, because I do. You know, I was inspired to hear Ina. Uh, Sov's an MP from Ukraine, talk about how she prefers to use her words, but she was prepared to pick up arms to defend her country. And I used that quote from her in our parliament when I was in debate last week, because we live in the blanket of comfort and freedom, separated from the risks of Europe. And Ukraine really is the front line in the Western world's fight uh, against Soviet or Russian aggression. Let's talk about the complacency that has set in with NATO, with the West. I've called it Putin's creeping barrage of aggression. The West has been like that frog in a pot of boiling water. We didn't know we were being boiled by Putin until it was too late. And so going back to the Orange Revolution of 2004, right through to uh, 2014 in in Crimea and Donbass, it really has been a prolonged attempt to control Ukraine, to destabilize and to keep it in the sphere of Russian influence. Um, Has this lulled the West into a sense of complacency, thinking Putin would not actually go as far as he did because we've We've given them all of these baby steps, Malaysian Air-17, multiple cyber attacks. Has that complacency led to the invasion taking place, in your view?
0: Absolutely. Uh, we certainly, in the West, decided to ignore, uh, our leadership decided to ignore all the signs. If you look at retrospect over the past couple of decades, uh, all the intelligence uh, was there all the signs were there the right experts were saying all the right things and you know being personally involved were in washington brussels in ottawa i know for a fact that governments legislatures been provided with plenty of information to show how dangerous russia is but pretty much everybody chose to ignore this because it was comfortable think about dependency of european union on the Russian uh, energy resources, 40% of natural gas of European Union is coming from Russia, 27% of oil, pretty much 50% of coal. There are countries in Europe that are 100% dependent on Russian gas. Uh, to let themselves to such a sad state of affairs, it's it, 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 it's ridiculous, frankly. I mean, this is the matter of a national security that has been known for many, many years. Let's think about how Vladimir Putin came to power. He came to power 22 years ago by blowing up two buildings in Moscow, killing his own Russian people, blaming this on the Chechens, starting the second Chechen war and killing indiscriminately women, children, elderly, wiping up the entire, most of the Chechnya And then reinstating themselves as the powerful leader in Russia. Since then, Russia engaged in so many conflicts. Think about their support of criminal Assad's regime in Syria, where chemical weapons were used, where Russian actually flew combat missions killing civilians along with Assad. Think about various cyber attacks on Canada, US, European Union. Think about Russian getting Uh, interference being interfering in the United States presidential or congressional uh, elections. Think about Russian aircraft threatening our Canadian aerospace. Think about Russia turning gas to Ukraine and subsequently to Europe in in uh, uh, 2012 and other years as well. So the signs, the obvious signs were there that Russians been planning this for a very long time. What they've been doing, in my opinion, is testing the resolve of the West. They've been testing how far they can push. Putin is the bully, and he know, and you know, dealing with the bully, that the weaker you are, or at least the weaker you come across, the further the bully is going to push. So I believe it is our own fault, fault our own leadership, that we were so short-sighted. We were hoping for good, positive, Uh, relations with Russia, but when the other side is not willing to play by the same rules as we are, when the other side is willing to engage in criminal activities, is willing to sabotage, willing to kill its own people, sooner or later is going to come to a situation like we have uh, in Ukraine. In 2014, Russia has engaged Ukraine in the militaristic way, occupied part of the sovereign country against Budapest Memorandum and various other international uh, agreements, and yet, not much was done by Russia. There were some half measures to stop Putin, so Putin and his criminal regime, they smell weakness once again, and now we're in the state of the full-fledged war in Europe.
1: Yeah, and for our listeners, the Budapest Memorandum is a good case in point, when the Soviet Union broke up, as you said, Russia had most of the military equipment and capacity, but Ukraine had incredible uh, uh, nuclear stockpile pile of weapons. Third largest
0: so, in the world after Russia and United States, third largest in the world.
1: That's right. So that That agreement turned over that huge arsenal to Russia in exchange for a legal agreement that recognized the territorial sovereignty of and independent Ukraine. That included Crimea, of course, included Donbass and all the regions. So as you said, the testing the resolve of the West, the revolution of dignity, the Euromedan that I got to visit when Prime Minister Harper and, and some of us went to the to the swearing in of President Poroshenko. I didn't go to the ceremony, but some of us toured the Euromedan. That was the expression of kicking out that Russian puppet leader, And when that happened, Putin switched from trying political control to military control in Crimea, in Donbass. We saw some of his troops uh, in the Donbass under cover of of being phony warriors shooting down Malaysian Air 17. Um, There's been this sense that he did push, he did push, he did push. It's the creeping barrage. We kept our head down. And that led to the invasion we saw a few weeks ago. Um, so let's, listen, you've given us an incredible overview, and you've talked about, a bit about the cyber attacks, and the world has changed. This is the most dramatic change since World War II. The disinformation, which they've been playing on Canada, but even with, with Ukraine itself saying that they're denazifying or the denazification of Ukraine is this ridiculous, suggestion made by Putin for what he's doing we've also seen their their troll farms and and Russia wants the west fighting amongst ourselves on social media and he wants to denigrate the west while he moves in can you talk about the disinformation a little bit for a second and particularly how absurd it is with uh president zelensky who is a jewish leader being accused of harboring Nazis?
0: Well, this is the most uh, ridiculous uh, statement that uh, Putin has made thus far, that uh, President Zelensky is the Nazi leader and then the Nazi regime. President Zelensky Zelensky is a Jew. Uh, He is a proud Jew. He is coming from the very proud Jewish family in Ukraine who suffered greatly, Were three brothers of his grandfather died from the Nazi regime, and his grandfather spent the entire World War II from 41 to 45 fighting Nazis and went all the way to the Berlin. Um, President Zelensky is the only Jewish head of state outside of Israel. Um, the previous prime minister of Ukraine, Volodymyr Groysman, was a very proud Jew. Before that, he was the Speaker of the Parliament. There are so many Jews in Ukraine in the positions of power and in opposition and in intelligentsia and in many walks of life who, and also in the military who are fighting bravely, who fought brilliantly in the Maidan during the Revolution of Dignity and now fighting bravely Russians that it's absolutely absurd to call Ukrainian government, Ukrainian people, Nazis. But this is what Putin does. He spreads this propaganda and it's not only because... He likes to do so, it's part of his hybrid warfare. And going back to influencing the West, we in the West also allowed this propaganda to spread freely for years. Think about RT television. Up to this day, not many people know that RT stands for Russia Today, and many people in the West have for years have been viewing RT television as alternative news because they were so sophisticated. projecting their information with a twist, but essentially a soft Russian propaganda. They've also been using lobbies in the West, uh, investments. Think about London, called the laundromat of the Russian oligarchs. Think about all the Russian investments and all the yachts and all the private jets and all the contributions to political parties, uh, sometimes openly like uh, Le Pen's front in France, sometimes uh, uh, secretly. But that's has been happening all the time. That's all part of the Russian uh, hybrid warfare. And this propaganda is an important aspect of that warfare. We see this in Canada all the time. Ukrainian Canadian community, for instance, has been facing this during the Soviet uh, era since 1945, and is facing now every time Ukrainians in the Ukrainian Canadian community speak out against um, Russian aggressors against Russian chauvinism, against interference of Russia with the Western liberal democracy or human rights, we're being called Nazis. This is how they called us. They called James Bazan, a member of the Conservative Party, a Nazi. They called Christian Freeland, a a, a prominent member at the time, a minister of foreign affairs of Canada, uh, a a Nazi. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to divide us here in the West. They're trying to uh, to plan the seeds disinformation and hoping that media will pick this up and is gonna portray this as the freedom of speech, will develop this debate and is gonna work. So far, I'm happy to report that it. it hasn't worked because even in the political case when Christopher Freeland was attacked, I believe the entire Canadian parliament stood united behind Christopher Freeland and the Liberal Party and fought off this disinformation. The same in the case of James Bazan, or other members of parliament who are attacking the same is the case uh, with the Ukrainian Canadian community. But rest assured that Russians will try again and again and again. And do you have enough still influence up to this day in Canada through the agents of influence through the Russian embassy, and they're still throwing money and they're using their, their, their agent of influence to spread disinformation. And we need to be very, very, very careful. When I grew up as the child in the Soviet Union, Russian or Soviet at the time propaganda was so primitive that even as the child, I knew that they were lying on TV and I wasn't willing to listen to that propaganda on TV or in school. Now, however, it is so sophisticated. They're using Western technologies, they're using our own democracy and the freedom of speech and our own institutions and often businesses and lobbyists. Against us, and therefore we need to be very, very careful not to fall for this Russian propaganda.
1: If they're beating us uh, with the very liberties that our countries are founded upon. They're using and perverting against us. Another reason why people should be very wary about anything they see on Twitter or on social media. Um, and many of us, including yourself, including myself, have been calling out RT for for many years. It's been great to see the broadcasters. Uh, pull the plug on RT. But really, once again, it's the complacency. It shouldn't have taken the full fledged invasion. This should have happened. So look, we've taken a lot of your time and I know you've been working uh, tirelessly getting the message out, organizing. I think a lot of Canadians want to know what they can do to support. So I'd love to for you to talk about a group that you've helped work with and that Uh, The League of Ukrainian-Canadians, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, there's so many local initiatives. Speak for a minute on that, and then I want to speak for a few minutes on what we should be doing with respect to our defense budget, with respect to the Arctic, Um, because I'll tell you, I've been talking about Arctic sovereignty for many years. When I was Foreign Affairs uh, Shadow Minister, we had a study on sovereignty, and it was actually a liberal, Boris Wivnitsky. He and I made sure that the first recommendation on Canadian uh, Arctic sovereignty was to prepare for the Russian militarization of the Arctic with the future maritime Arctic polar routes, Uh, their their icebreaking capability. We can't build one icebreaker. They've built dozens, a few of them nuclear powered. Talk for a second about what Canadians can do to support what's happening, what your initiative is and then a few minutes about our defense budget and Arctic.
0: Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm just amazed with the positive response of people in Canada, right across Canada, and how they're reactive to support people, Ukraine, the government, Ukraine, on this fight, because clearly this fight is not only uh, for the survival of Ukraine as the state for Ukrainian people, but is the fight for democracy, for freedom, for the world order as we know it, for stability of Europe and the free world, and for our Canadian values for freedom, democracy, human rights, rule of law, for the better future for our children. Um, right now, when Ukrainian orphanages and schools being hit and the children are fleeing Russian bombs, I'm sure that all Canadians can feel for them and they're asking, what can we do? And you can see the response um, has been tremendous. Ukrainian Canadian community, it doesn't matter what organization you belong to, what church you go to or you don't, neighbors. Uh, been calling us and asking, what can we do? In the church that I go to, uh, my priest called me the other day, an elderly lady in her 80s, who is not Ukrainian, she is on the Italian descent, living in Canada her entire light, life. She walked across the street, she came to the priest, and she brought $60,000, essentially her entire savings that she had just to support the humanitarian effort in Ukraine. We have been raising millions and millions and millions. The fund fund that I am a co-founder with, Friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, uh, has been supplying non-lethal military assistance to Ukrainian troops, body armor, helmets, first aid kit, and other such uh, equipment. There have been so many other funds who have been helping refugees who are in Poland mostly now by other Eastern European countries as well. And this is probably just the beginning uh, of this refugee uh, movement. People have been calling their members of parliament across Canada, non-Ukrainian Canadians from various backgrounds asking government Canada to step up uh, its assistance. So I just want to thank on behalf of the people of Ukraine and on behalf of the Ukrainian government, on behalf of the Ukrainian Canadian, all Canadians for their tremendous support. It has been truly, truly, truly very much uh, appreciated.
1: Yeah, one, one thing on that, Ukraine always has a friend in Canada, and um, it was Brian Mulroney's government that was the first Western government to recognize the independent uh, Ukraine post-breakup of the Soviet Union, and on the first diplomatic trip, it was Ray Natishan, the Governor General of Canada, a Ukrainian-Canadian, got to meet the Ukrainian head of state. So we are a very special friend, and that's why I'm glad to see the government uh, stepping up their efforts. Yeah, I'm trying to be nonpartisan on this podcast today, but we should have been doing this for many years. But yeah, that that pride that, that uh, Canadians have in our Ukrainian-Canadian community and the ties between our countries, that means we have to continue to step up. So a, a few closing thoughts on what we need to do with our defense spending, our role in NATO and the Arctic. Well,
0: first of all, I think we as... Canadians need to realize, and we as West, Western leaders, establishment, everybody who is involved in the decision making uh, needs to decide to, to determine that and realize that the world order as we know it has changed. I know there's war been going on only for a couple of years, uh, for, sorry, a couple of weeks now, but it has changed everything. This is not anymore some sort of a local conflict. You're having, once again, a full fledged war for the first time since 1945 in the heart of Europe. Uh, It's a wake-up call. It's probably 15, 20 years too late, but nevertheless, it's a wake-up call that Russia, the Russian regime, as we know it right now, cannot be trusted. They cannot be a partner to any Western government, to any Western companies. They cannot be trusted. We cannot be buying their resources, paying them with our Canadian American dollars, and then Funding their terrorism, funding their war. Europe, United States, Canada. We need to become independent as far as uh, energy goes. Where it's renewable resources, where it's our own Canadian oil and gas, other options. Everything's on the table, and that is already happening. We also need to realize that right now, Ukraine is at the forefront of Western civilization fighting not only for themselves but for us in the West. Because as many experts have said to date, and I have been saying all along, Putin will not stop on Ukraine unless he stop. And therefore, we need to support Ukraine with everything we got. President of Ukraine have been asking for a no-fly zone. President of Ukraine have been asking for aircraft. The aircraft that are sitting right now in Poland, MiG-29, the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly and haven't been giving to Ukraine yet. President Ukraine have been asking of the sophisticated uh, anti-air defense system that haven't been provided yet. They're being shipped to Poland, but there is no use for them in Poland. Some Western experts have been saying that might escalate. I find this uh, notion ridiculous because yesterday the Pentagon reported in the U.S. Congress that today they provided seven, over 17,000 javelin stingers and other missiles. So if that didn't escalate, I don't think a few sophisticated... Uh, anti-air system will escalate the war further, but it will definitely help Ukraine to bring down Russian missiles, aircraft, they're indiscriminately bombing civilian targets. We need to support Ukraine with everything we got, because that's all we have right now standing between us and the Russian aggression, and because it's the right thing to do. And because we have a moral obligation, you, Aaron, mentioned that Budapest memorandum. Let me expand, expand on this, when Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal uh, of uh, nuclear weapons in the early 90s, it was given in guarantees by United States, United Kingdom, France, Russia, China, for its sovereignty and integrity of its territory. If we do not honor this, United States being is, and UK and other NATO countries, with Canada support, we're not signatory, but we are a NATO member and we have a say, what kind of message are we sending to North Korea, to Iran, to other present and future rock states around the world. The message is simple, that any agreement with us is not worth the paper it's written on, and then we do not have a backbone. This is a very dangerous situation. So my advice has been almost every day on the calls with Washington, Brussels, Ottawa, and on TV, let's be steadfast, let's be realistic, let's realize we have a new world order now, and let's support Ukraine with everything we got before it's too late. Yes, the prices of gas might go by 30, 40, 50 cents up. Yes, it might not be convenient for us or Germans or Americans for a few months, but less than what we have here at stakes. We don't want to have a major catastrophe in the heart of Europe, whereas a humanitarian with millions of dead people, whereas another Chernobyl here, which would be worse because of the station that was just attacked two days ago, if it was exploded, it would be a nuclear disaster 10 times worse approximately than Chernobyl. We don't want to have Russian troops in the NATO states, and we don't want to have the World War III. Putin is the bully. He needs to be stopped, and he will not stop until we stop him. Thank you.
1: No, well said. And and I guess for me to put a final point on that, it means Canada finally has to get our plan to take our NATO commitments seriously. The NATO alliance Canada is a smaller member, but we're a founding member. In many ways, we're the bridge between North America and Europe, and we have to start playing that role. You said the the aggression of Putin won't stop in Ukraine. Canadians may forget we border Russia in our Arctic, and so we have to take Arctic sovereignty seriously as well. And these will take long-term consistent spending commitments to make sure we give our men and women the equipment they need, including fighter aircraft that are interoperable, including in the Arctic, uh, including long-term expression of our presence in the North. And uh, with the Rangers and, and Inuit and First Nation people, we have the ability to to really make sure that our Arctic remains Canadian and not at risk of Russian aggression. And finally, I've met with groups in Quebec and in Nova Scotia with plans for liquefied natural gas sites that German markets are interested in. Uh, Europe desperately wants to remove this this hold Putin has over them uh, from an energy front, but we've seen consistently the Trudeau government against using Canadian resources. Nothing shows that ESG, the high ethical, socially responsible, highly governed ESG resources better than this crisis. We should be displacing Russian energy around the world. We should be providing stable, democratically sourced energy to Europe uh, to isolate and remove reliance on Russia. So listen, Ihor, any final thoughts? Um, uh, you know, All Canadians, our thoughts are with Ukraine, Ukrainian people. Uh, Thank you for your work as a, as a great Canadian, a, a veteran, a, a father, a volunteer. Um, you know, we're thanking you for keeping these lines of communication open and, and helping Ukraine.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. Uh, thank you to the uh, Government of Canada, Parliament of Canada, and to the Canadian Armed Forces. Thank you to all Canadians for everything what they do for Ukraine and what they do for Canada. Because as you said, it's a very interconnected world. We just talked about this, and these are my final thoughts. That yes, it took us a long time to get to this point, but extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures for true leadership for evaluation of what we have been doing to this and what we need to do in the future. We don't know how this conflict will end, but chances are it might drag on for some time. It might also drag other countries to this conflict. We're already seeing that China, for example, is preparing to invest into Russian Gazprom and is also making other moves, thinking perhaps about taking over Taiwan and other dangerous moves that can bring even more escalation. As you said, we need to start finally making serious investments into our Canadian armed forces, into our national security, and we need to get even closer with our NATO and non-NATO partners uh, as well. We let Putin get away with crime for too long. This is a defining moment for us as the Western civilization, as the liberal democracy, as a humankind, what we do now is going to define us for years and years, if not centuries to come. So let's not look for short, easy solutions. Let's think strategically, let's be steadfast, let's stand truly not only in words, but in deeds with Ukraine, and let's ensure that we do not allow President Putin, Russia, and other rogue regimes around the world to win this war for freedom, for democracy, for stability of the free world.
1: Well, well said. And I think this has shaken the West out of its complacency, a complacency uh, in place since the Orange Revolution, certainly since the Revolution of Dignity. And we have to now call out Putin's uh, aggression for what it is. So the hope is the complacency is over. We now need to stand with Ukraine. We need to give the equipment and support needed. We have to fund our military better, defend our Arctic, and make sure that Canada has an interest-based foreign policy based on our economic, our trade, our diplomatic interests, but also our values. And this really is a, a struggle between uh, the democratic West and the authoritative kleptocrat regimes that will never respect the rule of law, never respect Uh, peace, security, human rights. So it really is existential. So look, Ihor, thank you. And thank you for all you're doing. Give my best to Lada and to the community and to everyone you're speaking with. And thank you for tuning in to a return to the Blue Skies political podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, Member of Parliament for Durham. It has been a podcast on hiatus as I had a job as leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party, candidate in a leadership race, all taking place throughout a pandemic. But the goal of this podcast was to have respectful, serious, and informed discussions on issues facing Canada, issues facing the world. And I can't think of a better guest, a friend, a, a, a patriot, a great a great veteran, and, and volunteer to talk about one of the most serious issues to grip the political landscape in the West, in the last half century, which is the situation in Ukraine. So it's been a bit of a longer podcast. I'm getting the cobwebs off in how to host these things. But Ihor, thank you very much for all you're doing. And if anyone listening, if you have uh, a question or if you wanna know how to support some of the great causes that Ihor outlined, send me a note through social media, through email. And also if you have any ideas of topics you want covered on the Blue Skies Political Podcast, we have some really good guests coming up down the hopper, informed kind of national leaders like Ihor Kozak. We're going to try and bring a high level of discussion and debate in, in as we blue sky the issues facing our country. I have a little more time in my schedule now, so I can actually do this in a way that I hope adds to discussions that are important, the kitchen tables across this great country. So thank you, Ihor. Thank you very much for tuning into the Blue Skies political podcast. Tune in next time where we blue sky another issue important to you.